All right, my clock shows 9.30, so I'm going to get us started. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you are at work in us. Uh, You have forgiven us our sins through the cross, and you are helping us learn what it is to repent of our sins and to forgive others for how they sin against us. Uh, Help us grow in that, because that is real growth in Christian maturity. So we ask you to help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, just a reminder, we are working our way through, I forgot to send you the notes. Um, We are working our way through uh, forgiveness and repentance, just sort of as big uh, concepts and talking about how, you know, how that works itself out in our lives. So uh, we've talked about forgiveness for several weeks. And now we're going to take a couple of weeks and turn to repentance. Uh, And before we do that, we're going to say our uh, memory verse that we are going through each and every week, because this is sort of the theme of the whole class, Ephesians 4.32, which says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So let's all say that together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 uh, So, today we're sort of backing up a little because we're just going to really uh, define what repentance is as a concept. Right? So we're going we're to look at some Bible verses, we're going to look at some uh, Westminster Standards, which the... Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms are what we think are a faithful summary uh, of what the Bible teaches. Uh, and so we're going to look at some of that stuff and just really try and walk away with, what, with an idea of what is repentance. And next week we're going to actually talk about what does repentance look like? How do you do that repenting thing? Uh, there was a song that just went through my head. Anyway, doesn't matter. So, repentance. Um, You know, when the Reformation started, our uh, friend Martin Luther uh, posted up a big uh, list of ideas that he disagreed with with the Roman Catholic Church on the church door at Wittenberg. And despite the movies and all the dramatic tellings, it was actually relatively humble and wasn't meant to start anything. Uh, He posted it up there because he wanted to start an academic debate. It certainly wasn't supposed to spark a war that killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people and rewrote Europe. But that's what happened. But that had to do with the printing press being new and all that. But the very first of his 95 things he wanted to talk about was the idea that the Roman Catholic Church maybe was not, which at the time it was just the church, right? The Roman Catholic Church is a misnomer. It, that wouldn't exist until after the Reformation as its own denomination. But uh, the, in the 95 Theses, his very first thing he wanted to say, and you know, if it's the first thing you say, it must be pretty important, was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers 
to be one of repentance. Uh, and if you turn over to Mark 1, uh, Mark 1.15, the very first recorded words of our Lord there are that he was preaching of the kingdom, saying, repent and believe. Right. So the idea of repent and believe shows up very early uh, in all of the Gospels. So whatever it is that Jesus came to do, uh, however it is he saves us through the cross, it involves repentance. And the reason we have forgiveness and repentance going together in a class is because in the Bible, repentance and forgiveness are tied together. Such as in Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is Jesus explaining the scriptures to the disciples. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right, so repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so repentance in some way is a trigger for forgiveness of sins, you might say. That forgive, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then in the uh, apostles' early teachings in the book of Acts, uh, both when Peter is teaching in his famous sermon, uh, and then later in a less famous sermon, but also Peter, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, different sermon, still the same idea, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So whenever uh, the disciples, whenever the New Testament is describing how God's forgiveness works, how the cross works, it is almost always tied to repentance. Uh, And so in Luke, Right? Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So not only does this have to do with our horizontal relationship with God... It has to do with our, our, our vertical relationship with God. It has to do with our horizontal relationship with one another. There's an actual tie between forgiving someone and their repenting. And Ken Sandy, uh, who wrote this book called The Peacemakers, which I've already said, I know some of you guys have some trauma from that book, and I just I need you to take a deep breath. And know that that is still a useful book, despite what may have been done at this church. Um, Ken Sandy says, granting forgiveness is conditional on the repentance of the offender and takes place between you and that person. And I I think that's exactly right. Uh, There is a real sense in which granting forgiveness is conditional on the repentance of the person. What about love covers a multitude of sins, preacher? Didn't you say last week, Wes, 
that a lot of times you just overlook stuff without making them confess and repent to you? Yes, I did. So this is where we have to be careful to not be biblicists. That's people that will take one verse and apply it ad absurdum, not taking into account complexity and context. Um, There are lots of little things that are real sins that it is absolutely appropriate to just keep on walking because you know the Lord's at work and, and you'll get there, right? So you can take into account, well, I know they're working on their anger right now or I know this is a problem for them and they really are working on it or, you know, this just right now is not relationally wise to bring up So I'm going to go ahead and take the attitude of forgiveness out of order uh, and we'll deal with repentance later if we even need to have that conversation for the reconciliation of the relationship. Uh, Oftentimes people really want to put things in a strict order, but just as the uh, forgiving other people flowchart is not necessarily a set of steps you take in exactly that set, So the repentance-forgiveness relationship is not always, well, repentance first, followed by forgiveness. There's sort of a principle in which that is the case, but just think about it. How many of you had repented before Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Oh, wait, none of you. Even as old as some of you are. Oh, you didn't think I was funny. When Mike says it, you laugh, okay? So, um, yeah. Um, Anyway, none of you were born when Jesus died for your sins, right? And there is certainly an experiential aspect in which uh, you were not, you know, uh, and and a a normative aspect in which you were not regenerated until the Holy Spirit came upon you, uh, and you were not in relationship with God as we experience time, But God does not experience time the way we do. Uh, And it is very clear that the work upon the cross by which a Christian's sins are forgiven was entirely completed at the cross and in the resurrection. Actually, the resurrection was the vindication of it, not the accomplishment of it, technically. Uh, And so, it's right, there can be an attitude, a disposition towards forgiveness prior to the actual repentance. And that's why Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Alright, so before I move on from there, I probably feel like I need to stop and see if everyone's doing okay after I made a mess of this. Everyone everyone okay? You want to talk about it a little more? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. 
And, and I think that's where, and you and I talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Hal and I were talking about, um, so, so I, this is where I think the uh, categorizations of reconciliation and forgiveness being separate can be helpful. Right? There can be an attitude or a willingness towards forgiveness, but if someone is unrepentant, particularly of a heinous sin that is doing you harm, there ought not be reconciliation of relationship because that's dangerous for you. And it's probably not healthy for them. Right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of making some, I'm making some categories, okay? These are not, I'm not strictly using uh, the categories in the way they get translated out of here. That's why I'm not citing Greek words right now. I'm just saying it's helpful to delineate between sort of a disposition of forgiveness uh, and a disposition of, re- of reconciliation. But right in uh, Romans 12, it says, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Bless your enemies, all that jazz. What it doesn't say is, and when you bless your enemies, you should submit yourself to being beaten and abused again. It does not say that. Uh, And anyone that tries to make it say that is reading that chapter in an absurd way. Um, A lot of people will try and take the example of Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Well, okay, are you capable of dying on the cross for all of humanity? I don't think so. So I I wouldn't use that as, uh, unless you have the divine in you beyond being in union with Christ and having the Holy Spirit, that's not a road you want to go down because that's going to create some weird theology really fast. Um, so, yeah, we, it is not our place uh, to just take abuse from people for no reason. Jesus didn't take abuse from people for no reason. He was purposefully taking the punishment we ought to take. That's the nature of substitutionary atonement. All right, uh, any other thoughts on that before we... Okay. All right. Remember I said I, I, I'm always trying to plug holes because I used to spend my life being abused by drunks and addicts? Uh, <laughs> I, I use that in a tongue-in-cheek way. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, a little bit of Hebrew and Greek when it comes to how the Bible thinks of repentance. So... In the Old Testament, the word that most often gets translated repent is this Hebrew word shuv. Shuv. And it means to return or to turn back. Right? So it's a, wait, go back. You forgot your socks or something. Right? It's that sort of word. It's a fairly uh, common word. Uh, And it gets used in that common way. But it also gets used in the context of repenting. Turn around. Go back. Normally, turn around and go back to your God. Now, there is another word that gets uh, translated repent a handful of times, and that's the word naham, but it only gets translated in respect to people maybe two or three times. Normally, that word naham, when it gets translated repent, has to do with God repenting. God repented. What did he repent of? He repented of making us. Genesis 6, verse 6. 
God grieved that he had made us, and he repented of his having made us. Uh, He was sorry, and he had changed his mind about us. And then he decided to save Noah and his people anyway. Right? So we got to be real careful when we try and over-apply words. Obviously, it doesn't mean he repented as in he had committed a sin that he was repenting of. It's saying he had changed his mind. He was he thought making us, I mean thought, I'm using anthropomorphic terms because the Bible uses them. We can get into the mystery of how this order goes into it. But the Bible talks in this narrative that sounds like, man, ah, I made all these people and it just didn't go the way I wanted. I mean, that's kind of how it sounds in that particular passage. Now, we all know God knows all things. He's omnipotent, omnicompetent. But don't let your theology trump the Bible. Let the Bible define your theology, okay? Um, So he was sad he had made us. And he was like, oh, I don't know about this. But then in his love and mercy, he decided to make a way. Uh, And then we get the whole story of the beginning of the redemption of creation uh, in Noah. Uh, So when it comes to repentance for people, again, this is normally that word shuv, such as in Ezekiel 14, verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Repent, shuv, and turn away, vachashivu, which makes for a fun Hebrew phrase, shuvu vachashivu, Klingon, Okay. Repent and turn away from your idols, right? So you got to remember, in the Old Testament, when it's talking about idols, there's literally a statue made out of wood or metal somewhere, and they may have physically been walking toward the thing. I mean, that, that is, this is not... Uh, 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 this is not just imagery for imagery's sake. There may have been a literal statue that they were physically moving towards, but then obviously this is also a larger point about their hearts. Repent and turn away. Turn around and turn back from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your abominations, from all these sins they were committing, which was a mixture of Uh, abusing the poor and sexual sins and who knows what else. Now, in the New Testament, there's only one word we have to deal with that I'm aware of, uh, and that is metanoia, which sort of has a little bit of both of those words in it when you survey the larger uh, use of the word in Greek language outside the New Testament. But it essentially means to change one's mind or to feel remorse. And so, to repent is to change your mind about something. And this this goes perfectly with what Jonathan Edwards talks about when he talks about repentance of sin. Uh, Repentance is going, I loved this thing, and I'm going to replace it with love of God. It's quite literally turning from one thing to another. Uh, and feeling bad about the sin you did. And so the New Bible Dictionary says, the call for repentance on the part of man is a call for him to return 
shuv to his creaturely and covenant dependence on God. And so we now have a twofold use of the word repent, because there are essentially two repentances. There is an initial repentance, that is the repentance of salvation. And that is something that you do, is the way you respond when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you are regenerated and given new life. Now, we all know that, uh, that you can't repent in that way prior to the Holy Spirit coming on you and receiving regeneration, okay? That is directly tied to salvation. But then there is a separate way, and this is actually often the way the word repent gets uh, used by like great awakening type preachers, uh, which is repent of these specific sins. And both uses of the word repent are appropriate, but we need to sort of know which repent we're talking about because they both matter. right? Christians still sin and need to repent, hence When our Lord Jesus Christ uh, said repent, he meant for the whole Christian life to be a life of repentance, as Martin Luther said. But when we repent as Christians, we're not, you know, continually being regenerated and converted, but we are still continually turning from all the things in our life that call to us other than our God. And we are choosing to leave those things behind for whatever it is they give to us, be it comfort, be it pleasure, uh, be it power, and we're, turning, we're choosing to turn to God for satisfaction. Uh, and often we're choosing to turn to God and trust him because the thing we're turning away from was serving us in some way. Uh, and so repentance is something that God works or occasionally stops from working in our hearts. Right? Uh, Isaiah uh, 6, And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. He's, He's actually telling the Holy Spirit what to do. And their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God is judging his own people by denying them the ability to repent. Or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Right? Uh, That was God that did that. Uh, Now, a lot of people will say, well, see, God made him sin. Well, no. God kept him from repenting, but that sin was already in his heart. He was already set on going that way. And God simply let him continue going down that path. But even when we do repent, even when we're already Christians, that is still the work of God. That's why uh, when Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, he says, correct your opponents with gentleness, because God, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so even there, you know, these opponents, right, uh, Paul has just talked to young Pastor Timothy about sort of 
enduring people when they want to bash him. And he's saying, you know what? Correct them with gentleness. They may not listen to you. That's not your problem. So don't take it personal. Continue correcting them with gentleness because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Um, Lord, may I do so if that should ever happen. Um, so what repentance, so that's what repentance is. Uh, any, any other thoughts about what repentance is before we talk a little bit about what repentance is not? Okay, repentance is not penitence. This is a a huge mistake uh, that a lot of people make. People think that repentance is is paying back things so that you're okay now. And by the way, restitution is absolutely a biblical concept, but restitution and penitence are not the same thing. And we'll talk about restitution a lot next week because it's often a necessary part of reconciling. But repentance is not penitence. If you're just paying things back to get benefit, to make things okay, you're not repentant. You're just sad there are consequences and you're going to find a different way to get whatever it is you want. Repentance is also not penitence. I'm a one-trick pony. It's not beating yourself up until you feel you've punished yourself enough. So many people just want to tell themselves how bad they are. They just want to beat themselves up. And again, there is such a thing as godly sorrow that leads to repentance and eternal life. That there is a good shame. If you have done an evil thing, you should feel ashamed for a hot minute. That's not not believing the gospel. That's understanding you did a shameful thing and feeling what is appropriate. But if you then proceed to try and beat yourself up until you have punished yourself enough, which a lot of people do, that is not repentance. And this is also where a lot of people who feel false shame because of things done to them, fall into, right? Uh, This is very common with people that have been raped or abused. They think they brought it upon themselves, uh, and so they spend time uh, feeling ashamed of what was done to them and thinking they did something wrong, and it shows up in all manner uh, of neuroticisms uh, and eating disorders and everything else as they are trying to beat themselves up until they've punished themselves enough. And this is also where they're trying to figure out, but how, do I, how do I forgive this person that is unrepentant? Uh, and this is where we have a, a disposition towards forgiveness without having a disposition towards unsafe reconciliation. Right? Because that ability to bless our enemy to uh, know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, therefore you're not going to go and try and get the price. Now you might try and get appropriate consequences. You should call the police if things like that have happened to you. And you should 
honestly testify in court so that those people spend time in prison. That is appropriate. It's protecting you. It's protecting others. And it is creating appropriate consequences that very well may lead to that person's repentance and eternal salvation. That is worth repeating. If you have been raped or abused in any way that is a crime, you can still be utterly disposed towards forgiveness. And you need to be to begin to heal from the psychological wounds that come from being the victim of that sort of thing. But then it is absolutely appropriate to call the police because that is protecting yourself, it's protecting others, and it is bringing down appropriate consequences that may in fact lead that person to true repentance and therefore save their eternal soul. And then there can be that horizontal reconciliation you know, in heaven or when there is such a safe space in such a time and such a demonstration of repentance that in rare occasions it's actually possible in this life. Um, but, uh, yeah, going back to it, penitence is not paying things back so you're all right now, and repentance is not penitence so that you're beating yourself up until you feel you've punished yourself enough. Neither of those things is godly repentance that leads to real change and eternal life. Uh, any other, what are some other things that we should throw in the repentance is not category? Well, repentance is not contributing toward your forgiveness. So, it's, yeah, it's not paying things back, yeah. Right. Yeah, what what was it? So when we talk about the how of repentance, we're going to talk about uh, the fact that part of repentance is accepting imposed, appropriately imposed consequences. Right? Sometimes a, repent- a person is repentant. They know they've done wrong. And they accept without, um, you know, w- without any sort of pushback appropriately imposed consequences. I told you guys a few weeks uh, ago that a friend of mine that I really do think is a saved person is back in prison. And I got a letter from him, and he's dumb as rocks, but Jesus loves him, I think. Uh, And he absolutely accepts 
the consequences of what he did. And I think that is a part of true repentance, um, is accepting that there are consequences for what we did and not trying to get out of them. Now, sometimes God is merciful, right? There, uh, David prayed, please, Lord, don't bring down on me these consequences that ought to happen. And God somewhat stayed his hand, although he still killed his son. And David said, Lord, what you did is right. Part of true repentance is accepting consequences. It's not beating himself, it's not beating himself up It's not beating yourself up, but it's saying, what I deserve is far worse than this, and God's love is what is carrying me through this, and I know that there is a day coming when these consequences will be over, and sin will be gone from my life, and I will no longer do these things, and there will be no more consequences for these things, and I will be with Jesus forever. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Yeah. I think I would say that all repentance is sanctification and all sanctification is repentance. I I mean, you know, we keep talking about repentance as this thing that you do when you've committed a particular sin. But really, all of life is repentance. God gives you a good thing, a gift. You repent of resting in that, and you turn to the Lord and say, Thank you for this good gift, Lord. This is of your hand. A bad thing happens, and you say, Lord, I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust you to bring me through this. Uh, Every single thing that happens, good and bad, sin... Remember, the word repentance, while we often use it, in the context of repenting of a sin, does have a wider possible set of meanings. And we need to embrace the full uh, scope of what repentance is. So repentance is, is absolutely turning from sins to God, but it's actually turning from everything to God. So, so anything you go through in life, you're constantly turning to Jesus. The more we turn to God, the more we are sanctified. And the more we are sanctified, the more we are turning to God. And everything in our life is happening towards that purpose. Uh, Is that helpful? Maybe? Mm Mm-hmm. And so um, what John said is, he's quoting Romans 14 about uh, the meat sacrifice to idols and 
you know, believers that know better know that it's fine to eat it because those idols aren't real, whereas some people are still, they're believers, but they're trapped in superstition, and so they think it's sinful for them to eat it. Uh, and so Paul says, well, if they think it's sinful, you know, at least when you're around them, don't eat it and don't let them know you ate it. It's fine, whatever. Uh, and because if anyone does something he thinks is sinful, for him it is sin. But ultimately, sanctification for those that think the eating of, of meat sacrificed to idols is sinful, sanctification for them is actually realizing it's not sinful. And ultimately, uh, being able to eat that meat and go, well, this isn't sinful, and not feeling that it's sinful. Uh, and in fact, this is, you know, in this life, for a whole complicated set of reasons that would be its own separate thing, uh, most people that struggle with alcoholism can never enjoy alcohol responsibly. But there is a real sense in which, in an ideal world, where I didn't have to put any qualifiers on there, real sanctification for an alcoholic is not never drinking again. It's having a healthy relationship with alcohol. Now, again, that's often not possible for a whole variety of reasons. But the ideal, the when Jesus comes back, uh, you know, ideal, is, is actually not total abstention, it's healthy consumption. Uh, so, yeah. Is that... So, so uh, with AA people, some, sometimes you have to help an AA person make an interesting leap because they've been sober for years and years and years, but they've sort of become a legalist about how no one should drink at all. And you have to go, well, no, you shouldn't drink at all. You're right. And we're not going to drink around you. But it is not appropriate for you to say that all consumption of alcohol is therefore bad, because that's also not true. The Bible is clear that alcohol consumption in moderation, even to the point that wine makes the heart glad and strong drink comforts the suffering. So you had to have had a couple, I, I would think. Uh, you know, is in fact appropriate. I, I don't know. Is that is that helpful to put maybe put it in that those terms? All right. Let's look at some examples of repentance. Now, so first of all, Psalm fifty-one, and we're actually going to look at this. A we're we're going to look at a lot of these examples next week uh, because they're going to help us. Uh, with thinking about what it means for us to repent. So I'm actually going to go ahead and, i got 20 minutes, so I'm going to skip reading that for now, uh, as well as Psalm 32. I do want to look at uh, Zacchaeus in Luke 19, and we'll look at this again next week, because it's going to tell us something about restitution. Um, So, Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, I want to point out, at this point, Zacchaeus has not said or done anything. And yet, 
Jesus approaches him. Right? So this is where I said there, there can be a disposition of forgiveness that is prior to actual temporal repentance. But the story does go on to talk about repentance. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, had, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to bring forgiveness so that we'll repent. Right? There, most people, and, and you see it all throughout the Bible, right? When Jesus declares the forgiveness, they haven't repented yet. Now, true salvation, true forgiveness does then result in repentance. But to just look at it in human terms, part of the reason the Pharisees are always so hacked off is because... He keeps declaring forgiveness before the people have demonstrated any change. If you've ever thought to yourself, how come that Christian group wants to hang out with those bad people? You might be a Pharisee. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Um, Right, And part of Zacchaeus' repentance was actually restitution. In fact, it was elaborate, uh, abundant, prodigal restitution. Uh, because it was so much more than actually Exodus 22 or Leviticus 6 actually require. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, restitution is a legitimate part of repentance. And then, of course, I'm not going to read it because we'd have to read the whole stinking two letters, but in uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, you got this guy that's sleeping with his mother-in-law, right? And uh, Paul says, this dude is not repentant of sin. Kick him out of the church and treat him like a stinking unbeliever. Right? If someone claims to be a Christian and is unrepentant of sin, I mean, we love you. And we want you to come to Christ. But Paul will say, deliver him over to Satan that he may be saved. That's actually how Paul puts it. Kick him out of the church, deliver him over to Satan, that he may be saved. And treat him as you would an unbeliever. And, alright, this is a pop quiz that I really hope you guys don't fail. How should we treat unbelievers? With, with kindness, love, and grace. Should we treat them with judgmentalism? Paul says... When I said, when I was talking about judging people, I wasn't talking about people outside the church. I was talking about people inside the church. Do we treat them with hatred and ridicule about how bad their culture is out there? Is that useful? I hope you say no. I'm just going to save you some embarrassment. Because the answer is no. It's not useful. It's a great way to drive people away from your church and make sure they never, ever visit you. But uh, it's definitely not a good way to share the gospel. 
Um, and then in 2 Corinthians, it turns out the dude has repented and they hadn't let him back in, right? They'd not restored him. And Paul says, guys, he repented. Let the guy back into the church and give him the Lord's Supper, right? So when, pe- when Christians do finally repent, they're to be restored. Uh, they really are to be treated as, at least in some respects, as though they had not sinned. Now, Obviously, if he, that dude went carousing around with his mother-in-law again, uh, people might be going, hey, is something going on here? That would be sort of a continued consequence of sorts. Uh, but in general, he is to be restored to full fellowship. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul talks about uh, repentance and what, what that, you know, we talked about, uh, repentance is not beating yourself up, right? It's not penitence, but there is a proper shame. And that's part of what Paul describes in Second Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Like, I don't regret that I made you feel bad. I just don't. Though I did regret it. I felt bad for making you feel bad. Uh, For I see that the letter did grieve you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. I don't rejoice because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Listen, I did call you out for this, and I didn't want to do it. Like, you hear that? Even when Paul does have to call someone out for sin, it's not like he feels puffed up and righteous about it. He's like, I don't want to do this, but I got to do this. This is wrong. You got to knock this business off. Ugh, right? He hates to do it. But I rejoice not because you were grieved, because I made you feel bad, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Right? So it's a shame, appropriate godly shame, is not a shame that leads you to give up or lose, necessarily, other than your sin. You should give up and lose that which is a result of your sin. But it's not, you know, it's, it's not I'm going to impose these consequences on myself uh, as a way to make up for what I've done. Now, sometimes you have to impose consequences on yourself to, like, help yourself stay away. I'm going to always, uh, you know, uh, guys who have to have filters on their computers so they don't look at porn, right, that sort of thing. That's an appropriate consequence that people impose on themselves to help themselves stop sinning. That doesn't fix it all. There's still lust in their hearts and all that stuff that they got to work through, but, you know, it helps a little. Um, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? So godly grief produces repentance. It produces turning to Jesus. It produces turning away from sin. <coughs> it, it produces resting in God's love, knowing that you're a child of God. That's what godly grief ought to produce. Whereas worldly grief is just, uh, I got caught. I want to make these consequences go away. Man, uh, or I'm so terrible. If I, if, uh, I'm not even acceptable to God, right? It can be any variation of these things that's this grief 
that isn't actually producing repentance. It's not producing turning away from the sin. It's not producing turning to Jesus. It's just producing bad feelings and wishing the consequences would go away. That's not repentance. Now, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Not innocent because they weren't doing sinful things. Innocent because they've shown themselves repentant. Right? They are like, ah, this was wrong what we are doing. Ah, we're going to make this right. We fear the Lord. We want him and we want to make this right. And so innocent in the same way we're all innocent. None of us are innocent without Jesus. But all of us are utterly innocent when clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So, uh, again, we're going to actually look at a lot more examples next week uh, as we talk about how to repent. And we'll come back to some of these. Uh, but any other things we want to talk about as far as just this basic, what is repentance and what does it look like at a 50,000 foot level? Yeah. Yeah, and this goes that goes right back to the whole. We have to know who we are in Christ. Only Christians have the spiritual resources to truly and fully forgive. Uh, the way I was talking about last week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then of course, yeah, if Israel repents, the Lord relents. All right, we'll come back to that next week. Uh, let's. All right, so we got nine minutes left, but yeah, you know, we need one minute to pray. So we got eight minutes left. Um, let's just walk through very quickly the Westminster standards on this, because I don't know if there's a lot to say. I think they're fairly clear. I would commend you going and just reading these and really thinking about them. And then I guess if you have questions, you could ask them, but in my brain, they're pretty to the point and useful. Uh, First, the shorter catechism, 
What is repentance unto life? Can everyone see this well enough to read it together? All right, let's, let's actually just answer that together. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So, I mean, this is a... If you're going, how do I repent of this sin? Just turn here. All right, so... First of all, I need to know that it comes from God, right? Uh, if you look at the earlier questions in the catechism, right? Saving graces are things that they're acts of God, right? Justification is an act of God, whereby, etc., etc. Sanctification also is the work of God's spirit, whereby, etc., etc. Uh, so even repentance is a work of God. When it says a saving grace, it's a thing God does by the Holy Spirit in us, whereby we go I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. We confess our sins. Uh, and I'll, I'll, confession is absolutely appropriate. Starting with confession to God, but often confessing to someone like a, a pastor. Right? I, I think the, you know, obviously the way the Roman Catholic Church did it with the priests giving absolution like they were Jesus and some of the other theology I understand there, that was wrong. But the generic idea of going and confessing to a pastor is perfectly biblical. Right? Uh, James 5, verse 16, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, I, I think we really threw the baby out with the bathwater on that one, and that's part of why Protestants are, you know, are a special kind of mess sometimes. We don't confess our sins we're all happy we confessed our sins in the liturgical service, and we don't look another human being in the eye and tell them, I sinned. And we need to do that more. Um, so anyway, out, we, we confess our sins out of a true sense of his sin. Right? So it's, I get it. This was wrong. Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Not because I didn't sin against anyone else, but because all of my sins, first and foremost, start with that. And in the context of Psalm 51... He was the king, and it's not like they had three branches of government. Right? The Supreme Court wasn't going to come after him. Nathan himself only knew to come confront him because of special revelation. So there's some contextual things there, too. Uh, but we, we understand our sin. We feel our sin. We go, this was wrong. I should not have done this. And apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Lord, I see what you've done for me. I see the perfect life you lived. I see the example you gave me. And I want to follow it. I see how you died on the cross for me. I see that this is all true because you rose again. I see that I am a child of God. Right? Um, along the same lines as Jack Miller, uh, J.I. Packer said, the true measure of a person's apprehension, understanding of the Christian faith is their, un- is their experiential understanding and experience of themselves as a child of God and God as their loving, doting Father. Um, So out of apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, I I hate this, I don't want it to be this way, turn from it unto God. And, And by the way, that's a whole complex thing, right? 
I, I, I see this sin, but what's the sin underneath the sin and the sin underneath that sin? Oh, well, it's not just, you know, pleasure or money or whatever. It's power. Oh, it's not just power. It's my own insecurities because of my lack of trust in God. Right? It, this is where digging deep down, there's often sin under sin under sin. But in order to uh, get to the sins under the sin, you've got to start with the sin you can see. In order to get to the sin underneath, you've got to start with the sin you can see. And so you say, this is my sin. Here it is, Lord. Here it is, person. Uh, and of course, if you sinned against a person, and we'll talk about this next week when we talk about apologizing as a part of repentance and how to make an appropriate apology, um, you know, you, you have to go confess to the person you sinned against most of the time. Uh, and then with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. If you're just sad it happened, and if you're just sad there's consequences for it, and you don't at least intend to change, you're not repentant yet. Now, lest you think, and he, he didn't change after the very first time, therefore I must not be saved, back up your truck. Life is complicated. We're all sinners, and... uh we, we often don't succeed on the first try, okay? So don't, don't think that just because you didn't, you intended to repent and didn't fully get there the first time means you're not saved, but it needs to drive you to Jesus for mercy and to new chutzpah to try and actually change things. Um, all right, we'll skip the larger catechism because it's just the same thing said longer. Um, all right, so... Again, this is just kind of wrapping up our definitions, and it's worth reading. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doc- so again, that's a thing God does. It's a part of our very salvation. It's a part of our regeneration. That's why it says evangelical grace. The doctrine of whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Uh, so that, that goes to what Fred was talking about. Um, right, biblical pastors are going to say, here's some sins, repent of these, and turn to Jesus, and here's Jesus on the cross. Uh, by repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. And, upon, and, and so this is, a lot of people stop right here. They see the odiousness, they see how it's contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. They see how dangerous it is, and they wallow in that. They just stay there. They beat themselves up for it, thinking they can cleanse themselves. They don't, with, the, with David, say, wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Cleanse me and I shall be whiter than snow. Right? We have to go to God for that. That's why we have to have an apprehension of his mercy in Christ. Uh, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. And we will actually come back to the rest of this next week because that will be a part of how we do repentance. So, um, answer one question. What did we learn today? (laughs) Just shout out anything that was actually useful today. Or if you shout out nothing, I'll know that I wasted my time. Don't wallow in your sin. That's a, that's a good one.
Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot repent. Away from sin and toward God. All right, three is a holy number or something, so that's enough. Uh, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for the evangelical grace of repentance. We ask that you would grant it to us, even as we would uh, hear maybe of our sin in the sermon today, we would also hear of your grace and mercy, and we would repent of sin. Not, uh, not, not to just be wallowing in how terrible we feel, but because we see how much you love us, what you've done for us by giving your Son on the cross, by how amazing it is that you indwell us with your Holy Spirit, then you really are our doting Father. So, Lord, Father, in light of how much you love us, give us rest and repentance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.